0: Direct from the city that lives by night, this is Thomas D.J., author of The Shadow Legion Books, and you're listening to The Quarterbin Podcast. This is Professor Allen, and welcome to The Quarterbin. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review a single issue from my comic book collection, which I will often select at random. Any book from my comic book collection is eligible as long as I paid no more than $0.25 for it. Was the issue worth $0.25? Was it a bargain at $0.25? Or was it still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 113th episode of the Quarterbin Podcast, we're looking at Dakota North, number one, from Marvel Comics, cover dated June 1986. Not... June 1996 which it's possible I may have said at the end of last episode but first a little feedback including a bit from the kindly sir sir Martin of Grey who wondered after listening the last episode what happened to his feedback on the episode before that well um you know it's 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 like this um uh, it got lost in the airmail I'm going with that as my excuse. Anyway, sir, Sir Martin had a few things to say on that infamous Looker. Back up in Batman and the Outsiders, the issue we covered in episode 111. I'd never heard the term Looker before this character debuted, as it was a very U.S. specific term. Finding out what it meant didn't help, neither did its rhyming with Hooker. Everything about her was awful. From the name to the look to the character herself. Okay, maybe Mike W. Barr was trying to tell us that looks ain't everything, but that's not a novel notion to your average comic book fan. We're not stupid. Actually becoming a vampire was the best thing that ever happened to her, as it saw Looker given a brain and treated with respect by Alan Grant in Detective Comics. He took a terrible character and made her usable. Thank you, Sir Sir Martin. That feedback was worth the wait. As soon as I posted the preview image for last episode's book, JLA Retroactive, there was interest expressed. The great Kansan Gregorujo reported that he had recently read the issue and was curious about what I'd have to say about it. I won't go into any detail until after the episode, so as to not inadvertently influence my commentary. Although he did make the very controversial statement, the reprint was the best part. I just told him that we may have different definitions of best. If you remember, that was the story I did not dig as much. Or more accurately, I didn't dig that story's selection for inclusion in the issue. But as Greg pointed out, that is the beauty of comics. After the episode, Greg expanded on his thoughts, explaining that he'd picked the issue up recently from Comixology. While I generally liked the entirety of the issue, it appears our enjoyment stems from different parts. I loved the reprint portion, while I thought the untold tale was just okay. Now, Greg freely admits that nostalgia may be affecting his judgment, JLA-123 was one of my earliest comics, In my lengthy addiction to those things, it's probably my introduction to the JSA, probably my introduction to the concept of multiple Earths, and probably my introduction to the idea that actual people actually made these comics. On my specific comment about having the reprint portion ending on a cliffhanger, Greg did remind me that it could have been worse. Imagine going 18 years before reading Part 2. After nearly two decades of buildup, you can imagine reading the conclusion was kind of a letdown. Yeah, Greg, I suppose it would have to be, <laughs> having been built up for that long. On that first story, the new story, or as they call them in the retroactive issues, the lost story, Greg says he's pretty certain that it was Carrie Bates' contributions that caused him to buy that one. The JLA, Adam Strange, Earth Prime, these are all things that should have put this squarely in my wheelhouse. Unfortunately, the whole thing felt like it was a cover band version of the era. I totally understand that, Greg, and, and certainly see that there is a big risk in doing comic books like this, but it did work for me. It hit the nostalgia thing right for me. And maybe I was taking it not so much as a cover band, but maybe my analogy would be a band from the 70s touring these days with the original bass player and the keyboard guy and really no other original members. So we're close in our analysis there. Sir, Sir Martin of Grey said he loved these retroactive books and Jason Trenner, Fanboyamus Prime, said that he was looking forward the listening to the episode. In terms of the meta narrative and the author self inserts, Nathaniel Wayne of the Council of Geeks YouTube channel and podcast feed had a few things to say, as he often does. In spoilers, it wasn't totally buzzkillish this time. Hey there, Professor. Just wrapped up the latest Quarterman podcast. I have a bit of an odd relationship with meta fiction. On the one hand, I love stories about stories and storytelling. It's one of the aspects of Sandman that I adore to no end. On the other hand, I kind of hate it when writers literally insert themselves. No matter what the angle on that is, I always find it self-indulgent. Even in a fourth-wall-breaking, jokey way. It only works if it's there for the quick joke and you move on. As tends to be the case in things like Sensational She-Hulk or Deadwool. Now, let me put a pin in this right here, because I've talked about this over on the Comics Reading Journal episodes recently, that I've read four issues of the Sensational She-Hulk, two by John Byrne and two by others, and they're specifically going for humor, for wacky. It really did work out well. So I'm with Nathaniel on the notion that that literary technique, that it can be used for humor very well. He continues, if you're actually trying to make a point about storytelling or fiction as world creation, fine, go ahead and have a writer character, but there's no need to make that character yourself. I'm looking at you, Grant Morrison. So by that measure, I'm much more okay with the use of this technique in the modern story than in the one actually from the 70s. The real authors pop up but it follows the established rules of Earth Prime and, as I said, they're a plot point, not the primary focus or story driver. The other one, the reprint, it's just... Why? It doesn't add anything of note while simultaneously standing out as a weird element. Anyways, nice work as always. Geekily yours, Nathaniel Wayne. Thank you, Nathaniel, for backing me on that one. He and I always aren't on the same page, so it's a fun surprise when we are. Clinton Robison of the Coffee and Comics podcast and blog and Mortal Enemy of Stella said that this was an impressive episode. Thank you. I missed a lot of these retroactive issues and would gladly snatch any of them up from a cheap bin, quarter or otherwise. Robert Ludwig said that it was a great episode, and in the spirit of Carrie Bates' character in that reprint story, he wondered what my superpower would be. I considered something about my classes always having perfect attendance, how much that would reduce the hassles in my life, but I settled on the obvious one, the ability to turn any coin into a quarter. Actually, to satisfy Stella, it would be to turn any coin into a $0.26.75 piece. That would cover the state and local sales taxes. Now, we also have a little bit of pre-feedback for this episode. So, I post my weekly reading lists at the blog, eyesandearsblog.blogspot.com. And the week that I post to this, Iowa's Joe Crawford from the For the Non-Discerning Reader blog, included Dakota North in a comment, Good reading week here, Professor. And on that same post, Nicholas from the Comic Reflections podcast said, Dakota North is a wonderful series, an abbreviated five-issue run that I wish had gone 50. In a little bit, we'll see if I agree with that assessment. Likes and retweets, and shares for these episodes came from the generous souls that I've already mentioned, as well as Ed Moore from Teal Productions, Chris from Bat Books for Beginners, Noel Thingval the team, from Longbox Crusade, Jared West, Mr. Dystopia, Jared Albrecht, the art sale artist, Gene Hendricks from the Hammer Strikes, the lovely Sutherlands, Al Sedano, Karen from Between the Pages, and Laurel at Mountain Flower 1. Thank you for all that. Very much appreciated. And let's get to today's issue. Dakota North, number one, had a cover price of 75 cents, meaning I got this comic at a two-thirds markdown off the original list price. Although, technically speaking, I got the book for 20 cents. It was at a half-price books back when they had quarter bins. And I picked it up during their 20% off sale the week after Christmas. So, 20 cents for this one. By the way, not only is this an issue one, it is also Dakota North's first appearance as a character. We have covered a lot of issue ones on this show, but I'm not sure that we've done many actual character debuts before. The cover, by Tony Sammons, shows a pretty redheaded lady on a motorcycle firing a gun at a couple of masked thugs. The title's logo, shaped like a business card, says Dakota North Investigations and has a lipsticked lip print on it. In the upper corner, we have an image of the same lady with I suppose the same gun, and this time the gun is smoking. I want to talk about the cover just for a bit, because usually covers don't really matter that much to me in terms of helping me decide to buy an issue. Most of the time, what matters to me is the title of the book, the characters. That's what's appealing to me. If I recognize the title, or if I I see five in a row with a similar name, you know, from the same run, that's what draws my attention. After all, what I'm seeing of the comic is usually just the top inch or two depending on how I'm going through that particular short box or long box. But with this one, I think I must have had some vague recollection of the title, maybe. Maybe not. But the word investigations may have been what had me pull this issue out of the box. And then the redhead firing the gun on the motorcycle is what made me plunk down my two bright and shiny dimes for this. So Tony Sammons, good job. The story... Design for Dying was written by Martha Thomases, with interior art also by Tony Salmons, or Salmons. I'm not sure. We start with a column of heads on the first page, introducing us to Dakota, Ricky, S.J., Mad Dog, Amos, and Cleo. No other description, no sense of the relationships between these characters, but I guess it does put names to faces. And I will confess, I did flip back to this page a few times while reading the book. The rest of that first page is the redhead named Dakota North, being protected by Mad Dog, who is firing a handgun at an unseen victim. Eat lead, geek face! It turns out that this is a training exercise, and that Mad Dog has just killed a cardboard cutout of an old lady. If this was the street instead of our basement, you'd go straight to jail. Detective Amos Culhane wanders into the scene just as a potential client calls Dakota. She accepts the job of protecting fashion designer Luke Jacobson. My showroom was vandalized. With buyers coming next week, my new line must be protected. Dakota, in the same outfit as she's wearing on the cover, hops onto the same... Motorcycle from the cover, blows the detective a kiss, and hits the road. And next, she drives the motorcycle out of an elevator at Luke Jacobson's showroom. Not going to quibble about the logistical details of this, as one of the workers points out, now that is what I call an entrance. Someone there mistakes her for a model in a situation which happens to me all the time and hands her a yellow dress to change into. She assents, although I never took a job with a dress code before. Dakota reiterates that the designer wants to see her, but is handed a makeup case and advised to put her face on first. Dakota realizes from the weight of this bag that this is not a makeup case. She throws it through a plate glass window and it explodes. I'm Dakota North, she announces again. Can I see Mr. Jacobson now? Across town, in the best video arcade in the galaxy, Dakota's teenage brother Ricky is complaining to Dakota's father SJ that he doesn't want to live with her. She's boring. By the way, Ricky is wearing a suit, oversized shades, and a skinny tie because 80s. But the kid negotiates an allowance of 200 bucks a week from the old man, so there is that. Back at Jacobson's showroom, the designer explains that ever since RICOM bought his company, he's gotten nasty letters and threats that have elevated, that have escalated over the weeks. His new corporate boss, Cleo Vanderlip, recommended Dakota North's services, as she and Dakota's father did some work together in the past. As they discuss the job, a mysterious man speaks into a phone. They don't suspect a thing. Neither of them. You won't forget my retainer, will you, Ms. Vanderlip? The mysterious man replaces the phone, revealing to a security guard the holster and weapon under his coat. And he knocks down the guard with one punch. At the corporate HQ... Vanderlip reveals a bit of her evil agenda to her assistant, Anna, an agenda that includes stock manipulation, gaining power and wealth, and also trampling on one Samuel James North and his insipid young daughter, Dakota. Later, at Dakota's office, while she is discussing her day with Detective Amos, with Detective Colhane, her little brother barges in. Dad says I have to live with you now. Detective Culhane excuses himself. Who's the snappy dresser, Ricky wants to know, after the detective leaves. The next day, Dakota poses as a reporter to interview a competing designer, asking about his feud with Jacobson, and whether Rycom wanted to invest in his company instead. But she is quickly found out and run out of the showroom. As she flees, the designer says, everything is going exactly as planned. Sweetest Cleo. Vanderlip emerges from the shadows and agrees that it's time to go on to the next phase. The next morning at Rycom, a meeting between Dakota, Vanderlip, and the designer, Luke Jacobson, is interrupted by the masked gunmen from the cover, and Jacobson is abducted. In the car, one of the gunmen points out that the leather chick got on a bike and she's coming after us. The car turns quickly into a freight entrance of a Bloomingdale's-type store. Check this out. She'll never follow us up here. And you know what that means, because you've been reading comics a long time. Yes! She smashes through the window, and somehow her cycle and the car they were following are somehow all of a sudden in the main display area of the store. I have to be careful, Dakota says, raising her weapon. If I hit the wrong person, I could get sued. Yeah, I mean, okay, that's one reason, not to shoot the wrong person, I suppose, but you could come up with other reasons, maybe. I don't know. In the showdown, the masked guys just let Jacobson go. After a little drama at home with her brother, she heads back out to Luke's, where an alarm has gone off. The assistant, Anna, spins a story of a German named Otto breaking in and ruining their work telling the others to get the papers and meet at a specific warehouse. Not suspecting anything, she and Luke head out to the docks, which I guess is where the warehouse is, although that's not really stated very clearly. She leaves Luke behind in the car and goes to break into the meeting. This Otto guy is the tough guy from earlier, the the guy who beat up the security guard. And he has a connection also to Dakota's dad. And by the time she gets there, somehow someone at the meeting has already grabbed Luke out of her car and is holding a gun to his head. So either they moved really fast or or she moved kind of slow. They blast their way out of there, and as they are scrambling to their car, bullets flying, the pair is rescued by Dakota's brother? This Anna chick said you were down here. She was surprised you had a brother, Dakota. Dakota shoots Otto and he falls off the end of the pier. Cleo, who has been following the events from the shadows, promises that she and Dakota will meet again. And you'll pay for this. A few weeks later, Luke's new design line is a hit, and Dakota attends the launch party. Returning home to find her buddy Mad Dog and brother Ricky dressed identically, Mad Dog tells her that her dad just called to tell Dakota That her husband was in town. I didn't know you had a husband, boss, Mad Dog says. And her brother chips in. Yes, sis. When did that happen? The end. Trekker Talk fan podcast devoted to the adventures of 23rd century bounty hunter mercy st Clair from the pages of trekker comics by creator writer and artist ron randall i'm darren and i'm ruth we'll be discussing the stories characters and art in this excellent retro sci-fi adventure series as well as having side conversations about other areas of fandom we hope you'll join us as we travel from the dangerous back of New Gellif to the depths of outer space and everywhere in between. Trekker Talk is available at podbeam.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. And we're back. The creative team on this book is noticeably young or maybe more accurately, noticeably, inexperienced. According to Mike's Amazing World, this is artist Tony Salmon's 12th job out of the about 50 gigs he did in his comic book career. And the writer, Martha Thomas's, is even newer in her comic book writing career. This is the very first credit she has out of the five writing credits to her name. Dakota Northran five issues, and Martha Thomas' wrote them all, and nothing else. I found no indication that she worked under a pen name. This series, from what I can tell, represents the whole of her comic book writing career. So, the main entire creative team, writer, penciler, and inker, Salmon's did both pencils and inks here, had only 11 previous credits in the field. That may well be the least experienced creative team at a big two book that I've ever run across. Also, sometimes in the first issue of a series, there's a page or two about the comic, you know, an interview by the creative team, or maybe the editor discussing how the the book came to be. This page is what would become the letter pages, you know, around issues three or four. You know, we've seen, we've seen that plenty of time. Matter of fact, a book I read this morning is an issue number one from Dark Horse, and at the end of that issue, there are two pages about the creation of the book. The histories of the creators, all that sort of stuff. But nothing in Dakota North. And that really made getting information about this one pretty hard. So this one has none of that extra information, which is a bummer. I would like to hear what the thinking was, along with how Martha Thomas's got the gig. Did she pitch it? Was she assigned it? But sadly, I couldn't find anything about that. And I really couldn't find anything with certainty about Thomas's either. Now, I did find a LinkedIn profile of a woman with the same name who worked in comics during this period, but that was at DC. I'm assuming it's the same person. But I admit, it is really odd that someone who spent ten years as a publicity manager at DC would, in the middle of that tenure, write a series for Marvel. But hey, comics is a weird industry, and anything is possible. But in terms of the comic book itself, let's talk about that a bit. So let me start with the cover, which I've already said good things about. But I have another good thing to say about it. And I've referenced this already. And that's how faithfully the cover reflects the action in the issue. I mentioned that Dakota North's outfit and her motorcycle are identical to the ones inside the issue. But also, the outfits of the bad guys are precise and accurate as well. And the layout of the department store is recognizable. The only substantial change is that in the action inside the issue, she is not shooting the gun as she crashes into the building, which is what she does on the cover. Now, that makes the cover a bit more dynamic, and it's not deceptive at all. It is shockingly accurate, and that's actually kind of cool. In terms of this story, it did a lot of things right. I like being thrown right into the action, even if it was just a training session. That's a common trope in in comic books all the time. On page four of an X-Men issue, we realize, oh, it's actually just the danger room. They're not actually fighting. And that's a trope for a reason. So I don't have any problems with that. And we certainly did get a bunch of real action scenes. So again, no complaining there. Definitely a lot of stuff happened in this issue, and it moved at a nice, quick pace. And the family stuff was mostly good as well, at least the stuff with the father. The research I did do, apologies to Nathaniel Wayne, if he's offended by my use of the R word. But my research revealed that later, in issues down the road, the father is revealed to be former CIA. So the mysteries that are hinted at here do go somewhere. And I like the business stuff, the corporate espionage. Maybe that's one of the advantages of having a writer who comes out of the publicity department and 10 years on the business side in the comics world. Maybe they're a little more hooked in to the corporate world than your typical struggling freelance comic book artist. And I'm sensitive to those areas, to how business is portrayed because I do have some expertise in that area. And although a shortcut or two is made in some of the descriptions in terms of the the corporate and the stock stuff, there was nothing terribly negative that really jumped out at me. What was presented here seemed, if not precise or accurate, it at least seemed reasonable, at least for a comic book, and for any type of fiction, really. And in those settings, reasonable, Is usually the most that I can hope for, and this definitely passed that test. And the fashion business, the modeling business, that was a different setting for the story. That was a nice change of pace. Based on that, sorry Nathaniel, research that I did, it seemed that Dakota had a past in the fashion world as a model, but that's actually never mentioned here in issue one. And given the nature of the story, if that is indeed the case, should have been. And judging from the house ad for the title that they ran in this very issue, which is kind of weird because selling me on a comic book that I've already bought is a bit wasteful, but the house ad is a picture of Dakota in a low-cut top with a gun and the word style across the top. So I do think that the intention of this is to have a fashion vibe to it for it to take place in that world or or tangential to that world. And again, that's a good setting, but not mentioning the lead character's connection to that world in issue one, that seemed like an oversight. And I did like the character of Cleo Vanderlyn. She's a reasonable villain with many plots and many machinations and all that in my, again, Nathaniel, I apologize, in my research, I learned where that character might go, and to be honest, that sounded kind of dumb. I'm not sure about that, so I'm not judging that part of it. I'm just looking at what we get here in issue one, and what we get here worked for me. Now, there were also some weaknesses in the story. First, that lack of biographical background for many of these characters, including, as I've mentioned, Dakota and her father. There is a sense, yes, of being thrown into the middle of the action, but there's barely enough there to give me a chance to decide whether I like these characters or not. There's not a lot of opportunity in this in this first issue to make me care about them. There is some family stuff, but that's pretty surface level. I do like female leads in comics like this, whether it's Ms. Tree or Somerset Holmes, Black Widow or Evangeline, so I'm inclined to want to like Dakota North. And I mean, like both the character and the book. But I just barely got enough of this issue for me to like her. I did get enough, but just barely. Dakota's attempt to impersonate a reporter is quickly thwarted because the subject of her interview knows all of the fashion reporters in the tri-state area, and knows that this person is not one of them. If we're supposed to believe that Dakota is a top-notch private investigator. And I think we are. That's just a silly or simple mistake to make. Like I hinted at, the geography is a bit odd here. Dakota's ability to ride a motorcycle anywhere, including into a modeling agency, and then into a department store, seems unlikely. (laughs) It does appear on one page that she is riding out of an elevator. Look, I'm not a motorcycle guy, but I don't know about that. And whether the final meeting, was that supposed to be on a dock at the pier area or the warehouse? I'm not sure what was going on there. So I think some of these things were from that inexperience I've mentioned, that that lack of communication maybe is to be expected between an inexperienced artist and an inexperienced writer. But then maybe the editor should have taken a stronger hand in facilitating that, if that was indeed an issue. So the verdict on Dakota North number one. Like I said, this is an extremely young, or at least inexperienced, creative team. And there are some problems in the issue that I'm gonna chalk up to that fact. But overall, the strengths of this issue outweigh the weaknesses and the promise of action and intensity that was made on the cover is, generally speaking, delivered in the body of the issue. As my podcasting buddy, an occasional guest on the show, Paul Spitaro from Back to the Bins, likes to say, the goal of a first issue is to make you want to buy the second issue. And I have to say, on that measure, this book is a success. A solid quarter bin deal. I can't say that I necessarily agree with Nicholas Prom and that I wish this had gone 50 issues. But if I ever find issues two through five at the same attractive price point, I am going to grab them. That wraps up my coverage of Dakota North number one, bringing episode 113 of the Quarterman Podcast to a close on episode 114. By a complete and utter coincidence, we are moving from Dakota North to, well, just Dakota. Next episode begins another examination of a dead universe, and this time we're going to spend two episodes with Milestone books. And what we're looking at next time is Blood Syndicate, number one, from the Milestone imprint of DC Comics. Cover dated April, 1993. If you have any questions or comments about this issue, the episode, motorcycle riding, the modeling business, or the podcast in general, feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I'm Professor Allen, and I'll see you in the quarterbend. Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at Relatively where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and Short Box Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relatively Geeky. At gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening.